In the last decade, women have made up 50% of law school graduates, yet women make up only 38% of the legal profession. Somewhere along the line, we are losing women in the practice of law. What's the story? We're here to spill it. This is Spilling the Tea with M. Shielly, the podcast bringing together leaders and trailblazers to candidly share insights into their careers with the goal of helping you succeed in yours. Here's your host, a lawyer and advocate fiercely dedicated to the advancement of women in the legal profession, S.C. Selleck. District Attorney Summer Steffen has devoted her life to protecting children and families, providing justice to the most vulnerable, and is a national leader in the fight against human trafficking and sexual exploitation. As District Attorney of San Diego County, she leads the second largest DA's office in California, managing professional staff of over a thousand employees. Summer is the recipient of numerous local, state, and federal awards, including an FBI commendation for organized crime prosecution, Outstanding Achievement Award from the Deputy District Attorneys Association for the complex prosecution of the rape and murder of an elderly woman. She was named an angel of anti-human trafficking and a modern day abolitionist. Thank you so much for being on Spilling the Tea with MCLE. You are our inaugural speaker, so I appreciate you doing this with us. We're going to ask you some questions and see uh, what you have to say, and, and just hopefully our listeners can get a little bit better acquainted with you. Okay? Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. So first question, what does success mean to you? Success means that you've actually changed someone's life to the better, whatever, whatever that might be really small, like you just, uh, you know, do something, you uh, listen to someone and they get something off their chest, or you do something really big, like with a crime victim that's terrified of an abuser um, and being able to make her safe and to bring justice and to stop the abuse. So it can be small or big, but for me, uh, that success is transforming someone's life to the better for the moment or for their lifetime. That's really powerful when that happens. Can you tell us uh, what's your biggest legal accomplishment? You know, it's hard to, to find one, but I think the one that I always go back to is probably the one that I got the most nose on uh, when I wanted to start it. And when it finally became a reality, it was so exciting. And it's that I had a dream as a deputy district attorney that we would have a unit that was trauma-informed, that's specific and vertical to deal with victims of abuse and trauma, especially sexual assault and human trafficking. Because those kinds of crimes, they, they are the kind that leave victims with scars emotionally, physically, and where the victims feel that they did something wrong and they judge themselves. So I felt that the way we were doing business, not just our DA's office, but across the nation and the world in treating victims of sexual assault was not ideal. It wasn't evidence-based. And, um, you know, I got a few no's, you know, I, I, I brought that concept up a few times and it wasn't going anywhere. And then I think when finally we 
had the unit started and the New York Times uh, after a few years said that it was the real life version of law and order special victims unit because of the way we were we were helping victims, you know, holding people accountable, but it was about the process that it was just amazing. I felt that the whole team and, and maybe a little bit take some credit that it really wasn't a great thing that was going to last beyond my time here. That's really awesome. When was that started? That was between 2003 and 2005. So it's now considered like a national model for how you do things. And in fact, our unit writes the best practices papers nationally for the victim-centered approach. I've just finished an article for the American Bar Association with some guidance to judges about having courtrooms that are more specific and centered on this more complex type of victim. You know, when you have a robbery victim, you see most of the time on video, there's a robbery, it happened, you know, there's no judgment of the victim. But when you have um, a victim of a sexual assault, there's questions about what they were wearing, what they were doing. There's questions about their, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, all these questions that, that are irrelevant to that a crime happened to them. I'm very proud of that unit. You work with other district attorney's offices across the state, across the country. I I believe you also work with District Attorney Nancy O'Malley, who's up here in Northern California with me. Oh, Nancy O'Malley is is just, she's a shero. You know, she really, she pioneered so many things. We work closely together and she became the district attorney before I became the elected district attorney. And I I learned a lot from her and she was, she was just a great guide for me. She's incredible. So you guys do work together, I'm gathering, just because yes. you're, you're yes. kind of the main names when it comes to human trafficking and, and victims' rights. So Absolutely. Cool. So I guess that leads me into my next question, which is what's the biggest change you'd like to see in the legal profession? You spoke a little bit earlier about having a, a whole process for the beginning to the end of, of a victim's trauma. Is that something that you're, you're interested in seeing more of in, in, in the legal profession or do you have another uh, thing you'd like to take on? Well, in, in general, in the legal profession, I think we could uh, use more civility. Whatever side you're on, whatever side you believe in, that's okay so long as it, it's still done with respect and dignity and there's, there's no name kind of calling and, and there isn't just frivolous litigation where it's just meant to embarrass people, make them look bad. And I just think it's supposed to be a noble profession. And the more that we all strive towards that level of professionalism and civility that's absolutely something in that's a big picture in general. In um, my world of, uh, of criminal justice and, and working on responsible criminal justice reform, I'd like to see more data, not just talk, but more about what are the results. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing these days are this view that it's an all or nothing, meaning you're either protecting the rights of victims and standing up for them, or you're protecting the rights of the accused and standing up for them, or you're on the side of keeping the community safe. And I really think that 
we need to rise above it and look at it as a shared responsibility to safeguard everyone's rights. We should not we should not have a path that destroys somebody's life over safeguarding somebody else's. And that's something that we've really done a lot in San Diego. It, it's about looking forward and looking back, lowering incarceration levels where they're not the solutions, looking for root causes of addiction, mental health, but doing it while keeping the community safe. So balancing which is a hard thing to do, but it's, so it's worth it. It's worth it to invest in actually looking out for everyone's rights and making sure that we can do better. We can rise above and we can, we can acknowledge that mistakes have been made and we can try to fix them rather than get stuck and get driven by ego. But at the same time, uh, really really recognize that there are real victims and you can't just disregard their rights. Absolutely. And I think ego also drives that, that uh, incivility that's happening a lot in, in the legal profession right now and, and a lot in, in the country, honestly, too. So yeah, if, if we all take a step back and sort of try and look at the big picture, I think that would be absolutely more helpful to everyone involved. So you are obviously a woman. What do you wish that an ally would do to support women in the legal profession? So I think what I would say is that we, we've seen that men um, have traditionally done a really good job of bringing each other up, supporting each other. It's like they're the CEO and the next CEO is pulled up and they're, yep. you know, and part of it, I tried to analyze it. I think they have a lot of activities together outside of work. It's a little bit of stereotyping, which I hate doing, but whether it's that they're watching a game together or they're on the golf course or they're doing this, women generally, when, you know, in my world, they're, they're really busy. They're multitasking. They don't have time for a lot of the kind of social functions that build relationships with other women. We, we go about it differently, but I think we're doing a lot better job. But for me, the number one thing is always only compete with yourself and realize that you bringing up somebody else, praising them, you know, really um, recommending them, really inviting others to look at them closer, to see their talents, that doesn't diminish you. It's not one or the other. In fact, when you build up someone else, you somehow build up your own brand along the way as well, even though that shouldn't be your driving purpose. And sometimes I think we end up in this rut where we think that there's this competition and if I try to promote and really bring attention to another woman's talents, it might take away from me. But the competition should only be with our best selves and we should be promoting women and bringing them up behind you. Another thing is that if we've suffered as women, like, you know, I had three children in two years while trying major murder cases and, yeah. you know, never got a break, never, you know, got any anyone saying, can I help you or anything at that time? This is years ago. Our office is now half women. You shouldn't, you know, invite that suffering on other people. When you mm -hmm. become a 
leader, you can change things. You can provide more opportunities for women to um, still take care of their families and not be put on a mommy track or be labeled, but rather really promote other women. I mean, they don't have to go through the same hardship you went through. They'll have their own hardships. You should learn from those and help make the path easier for the ones that come behind us. That reminds me of uh, something that District Attorney uh, Becton has said multiple times, Diana Becton. And I always like to, to say it because I find that the most influential women and who are are making changes all agree with what you've just said, which is Judge Becton likes to say, I'm sorry, I call her Judge Becton because she was a judge and now she's a district attorney. It's so hard. She says, once you get to the top of the mountain and you've done all that climbing, it is your responsibility to turn back around and send that, send that rope right back down to the next person so that you can get all of your, all of the people that you want to be supported by at the top of the mountain with you. And so I think that that's that exactly is something right. Yeah, that's something I always hear from from high high profile, high power women. Is they didn't they didn't do it alone. They don't expect to continue doing it alone. They need allies. So that's really really cool to hear that from you too, because I think that's a theme here that we need to start doing. Right. My next question for you is: When was the time that you didn't stand up for yourself, and what was your biggest regret related to that? This is a hard question, so I understand if you want to take a moment here. You know, I I don't remember a clear example I've always been pretty feisty you know and kind Good. of I'm, I'm, I'm really small and, and so I have to like stand up for myself or else the wheels will run right over me but I, I do I do think in that question is is a little piece that I learned which is I do pick my battles so so just because something didn't go your way or somebody did did kind of mistreat you doesn't mean that you have to stand up at every moment for me. So I, it's probably right for other people to stand up all the time and kind of fix transgressions as they're mm-hmm. occurring. And, and I like to kind of give the benefit of the doubt that it was a misspeak or it was, it wasn't intentional or it was just a really ignorant person or someone who's negligent so I, I do let some things go. I have, you know, some mistreatment and, but then I'll pick a battle. And once I pick that battle, it's not going to be very pretty because I'm not going to just let be, but the battles I pick for a lot of the time are for someone else. Yeah. Um, I'm really not as good at, I do stand up for myself, but it's not as exciting for me to stand up for myself as it is to correct things, especially if they relate to equality or race issues or gender issues or anything. I just simply don't engage or think it's funny. I, I never, it was never okay for me to kind of laugh along with a bully or with, with somebody who's uh, just biased. And so I think we do have to all stand up against that and pick our battles. And that leads back to, you know, having compassion, which is, was, which is what you said is most important and maybe missing the most in, in the legal profession. So I think that makes a lot of sense. What advice do you wish you would have been given when you started in law? I think to, to not seek perfection, uh, you really feel, <laughs> you really I'm laughing because it's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really feel when you enter a profession like law and 
you know, you're a woman and, and you're in a district attorney's office at a time that the, the office 30 years ago did not have, you know, many women now were evenly split and it's incredible. But at that time that you have to be just perfect. And if you make any mistakes that it, it will haunt you forever. And I think you, you should seek excellence, but you shouldn't have uh, be so hard on yourself for every mistake and just let it really weigh on you. And I, I did do that. I, I, I didn't have that advice. So I just went into it. And anytime anything went wrong, I would beat up on myself and would not just say, well, that's what happens when you're just started, you're going to make some mistakes and, and be able to go easier on myself for them. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I had to write that down to seek excellence, not perfection. I think that everyone can take that that lesson and sort of learn from it. I think that it's easier for us to sort of focus on what we've done wrong, and just keep thinking about that one time we made a mistake versus all the good that, that we're able to do. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying too, which I, I really like. It's really, it's really positive. How do you handle, and you might not have this problem now because you are, are the boss lady, but uh, how do you handle interrupters and mansplainers or how have you, I guess, would be probably a better question. You know, that definitely happens, you know, that, oh. <laughs> and, and you're right. It doesn't happen as much. <laughs> good. It's good. Um, but, but there's vivid <laughs> memories of it happening and I am really focused and I learned this skill from probably from doing a lot of jury trials is, is um, how my face like reacts, you know, because yeah. I don't want anyone to see me sweat, if you will, yeah. uh, when, when those moments happen. So I'm very fixated on that. My face remains very relaxed and kind of with a smile, but immediately finds a space to regain control with, you know, methods that I've learned, which makes it very hard for the other person to continue to do it. So, so if they kind of interrupt, I let them finish the first sentence of their interruption and then in a little bit louder, firm, and but smile, I, I, I'll say, I see that point that actually goes exactly to where I was heading and then I'll continue with my sentence or that that seems like a little bit getting off topic, but I love that idea. Let's talk about it later, but Mm -hmm. now let's get back to this. So, but it's how you do it with, and I've kind of, I've, I practiced it enough in my head that I was able to pull it off many times and regain control of my moment and the meeting. That's really, that's really an interesting take on it. Obviously we're all sort of uh, coming off of the, excuse me, I'm, I'm speaking thing that, yeah. that Kamala Harris did, which was another, is another great way to do it. But I, I you, you got to get back into the conversation is, is I think the main point. And it's interesting to, to hear how you do it. So that's very, very cool. And I'm happy to hear that they're not uh, mansplaining you as much now these days. <laughs> What is an un or under-recognized hurdle for women in the legal profession? I, I really think that it is about women still being the more responsible for children and for elderly. So at one point in their life, they're, uh, they're just, no matter, even if you're in a great relationship where you share um, time, still more duties, generally speaking, again, will fall on women. The same with caring for elderly parents and other 
life things. And for whatever reason, uh, while the leaders or employers may have those same issues in their own life, when an employee does it, they don't recognize that that doesn't mean this is a lesser employee or uh, someone that you need to sideline or, or not promote. So, so I think that, that that is a hurdle and it requires everyone, uh, employers that have been through it and employers who haven't been through it to make sure that they continue to encourage young lawyers or lawyers of any age that are dealing with these issues because they are still really good at what they do. They, they're going to end up making up time. They'll figure mm-hmm. it out. It might not be yeah. this particular week when their child is sick or something or their parent needs to be moved into a senior facility, but they'll make it up to you later if you treat them right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was reading something about um, multitasking and how people who have children and people who uh, take care of them and take care of their elderly actually work at a at a, a faster rate than most people, and it's it's good work because they know they have to multitask and they know that they have to do all of these things in order to to survive and to get to get you know to the goal. So that's a really interesting thing coming from a district attorney. You would you know you would think that you'd want somebody who's going to be there all the time and and a hundred percent devoted, but it's good to hear that you, you leave room for, for people with diverse backgrounds. So that's really awesome. Absolutely. It's important. It's part of lifting people up and not having them suffer the things you've had to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like you had a, you had a good experience uh, while you were a deputy district attorney, sort of seeing what you wanted to maybe fix or some of the things you wanted to tweak when you became uh, in charge. And it, it sounds like you've done that, which is exceptionally awesome. So I'm, I'm sure everybody's very thankful for that uh, in, in San Diego. What makes you feel powerful? I think it's, it's, again, it's the same theme. I mean, my power comes from empowering others. Um, when I see somebody uplifted, empowered, when, when I see, you know, a um, domestic violence victim find her uh, voice, when I see a child, you know, that suffered through a school shooting, like, uh, like this, this week, I got, I had, did a major school shooting trial in my days before I became district attorney. And one of the young girls who was shot is now finishing high school and is applying for college and she's thinking about becoming a lawyer and you know that just makes my heart sing because you know her mom sent me the note that she always remembered how I empowered her helped her find her voice in the midst of it that's power for me that's the ultimate power is making people's lives better and empowering others that's, that's absolutely beautiful. I wish everybody felt that way, right? Which three words best describe who you try to be in life and how do you want to be remembered? I think I, I always valued courage, you know, and I, I, I think I've displayed that in my life. And I hope people will think of me that way because there are a lot of people that have a great heart and amazing hearts, great ideas. But it takes that nugget of courage to take you from an idea to action because you're kind of exposing yourself. You're becoming mm-hmm. vulnerable. Like even running for office, that for somebody who's not political, who's 
you know, just done my job. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's frightening, really. But um, it's being able to say, I want to accomplish these things. And for that, it means exposing myself to vulnerability, to attack, to, to everything. So I would say courage, character, you know, without character, it's just nothing. You know, if people don't trust you because your character is going to flip flop, you're going to give them your word and you're not going to, you know, so I think maintaining your character and probably the third C is the one we talked about before, and that's compassion. I like it. I like how you have three C's. That's very cool. Yeah. From everything I've heard of you and everything that, that, that has come up to Northern California, I, I think you're well on your way to accomplishing courage, character, and compassion as as what people will remember you as. This is our first time meeting, but I've heard about you for years from people in San Diego and also people who have heard about you in Northern mm-hmm. California and you are a force to be reckoned with. So it's very mm-hmm. exciting that you would be a part of this podcast. I just want to end with a question that I, I like to ask and maybe you have something off the top of your head. And if you don't, that's fine too. Uh, do you have any mantra or theme that you tell yourself in times of difficulty, you know, something that helps you keep going, that helps you remember to stay grounded? Is there anything that you think of that is just a, your mantra? You know, I have many things that keep me going, but but I, I do, uh, in very difficult times, which I have faced, I always tell myself that where there is life, there is hope. And hope is such a powerful force. Um, you know, now lately, it's uh, getting studied, and it's kind of telling us that the difference between people is not what trauma or bad things happen to them. It's often whether they have a measure of hope that makes them think that tomorrow may be better. And so that thing that it's hard to put your hands on that is hope and kind of reminding myself in the worst of times that I'm still alive so I can fight another day and there's yeah. hope. There's still uh, a chance. That, that, that gets me kind of gets me through those darker tunnels that we all go through. Well, I appreciate your time. This has been enlightening absolutely for me. And I'm sure that that our listeners will also find it uh, absolutely enlightening. Thank you for being so candid with me. And and I really appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thank you. You, You're you're made to do this. You really bring out people's thoughts and you did that for me. And I really appreciate it. Thank you again for being our, our first, our first guest. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Spilling the Tea with MCLE. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the women featured on the podcast? Visit our website at www.mcle.com or email us at info at Stay connected with us on Facebook and YouTube by searching MCLE LLC and Instagram and Twitter at M underscore she underscore LE. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care of yourself, lift each other up, and we'll see you on the next episode of Spilling the Tea with MCLE.